millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts, and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger, editor of Prospect Magazine, and today I'm joined by leading global economist and the FT columnist Megan Green to discuss the economics of war. What impact will Russia's invasion of Ukraine have on the global economy? By the end of last week, the ruble was down 20% on the euro and dollar after sanctions imposed by the international community, including the banning of EU member states from transacting with the Russian central bank and the exclusion of Russian banks from the SWIFT network. On Tuesday afternoon, just before recording this, the US announced that they would be banning Russian oil, uh, and the UK has announced that they will be exploring options to end gas imports as well as oil from Russia. In a recent article for Prospect, Green described these sanctions as the weaponization of finance on a scale never seen before. But are they working? And what will they mean for our own economies? So let's start there, Megan. Is the weaponization of finance having any effect on Russia's military operations? Yeah, so when you ask whether they're working or not, it depends on what the idea of working is. Um, insofar as the military operations, it doesn't seem like economic sanctions would have really bit yet other than to impact sentiment more broadly. If the goal is to change behavior, the history of economic sanctions suggests that they're not that effective. If the goal is deterrence, often they are more effective. And if the goal is you know, economic pain, then they can be very effective. And, and these sanctions certainly already have been for Russia. Um, I, I wouldn't I think it's hard to overstate how swift and severe these sanctions have been for the Russian economy. We saw bank runs immediately, Russians buying luxury goods because their value might hold better than the currencies, which I think has been the case. Um, the reverberations through the Russian economy have been significant. Um, a bigger question, I think, is, is what are the reverberations for the West? And there it's much less clear. So it's not clear that Putin is going to as it were, run out of money for his war operation, which must be costing him an immense amount. But he, not, he, he can pay for that. He can pay for it. Um, he can also print money for it. Um, and in fact, in ruble terms, the Russian sovereign's uh, revenues from energy sales are huge. Um, so there are a lot of ruble revenues coming in, which 
the Russian government can use to fund this war effort. It's just whenever Russia needs to transact with the outside world that it, it's it's unable to, uh, for the most part, with a few different carve-outs, gas being a significant one. Who's being hit hardest by this? I mean, what, what's the impact for ordinary Russians? So Russian people are being hit the hardest. Their currency has dropped like a stone in value. Um, which means that anything that's imported is going to be way more expensive. Um, normally, if your currency is depreciating, like the ruble has, the central bank steps in and props it up with foreign reserves, but we've sanctioned uh, Russia's foreign reserves. Um, we meaning the West, so um, the central bank's renminbi and gold can still be used. But for the most part, we've neutralized a big significant um, proportion of the central bank's reserves, so there's very little that uh, the central bank can do to prop up the currency. Um, you're going to see not only skyrocketing prices as a result of the depreciation, but you're going to see a scarcity of goods and services in Russia too. So for an average Russian, life has changed pretty significantly. For a non-average Russian, an oligarch in particular, life has changed pretty significantly too, because of course the West has tightened the thumbscrews on oligarchs and imposed more sanctions on them as well. And the idea there is less economic in nature, more political. If there's more pressure on the oligarchs, they might start to think twice about exactly why they're supporting Putin and his regime, um, and, and they might start to turn. When you look at the history of sanctions, I mean, for instance, there have been pretty severe sanctions on Iran for a long time. Would you anticipate that the the sanctions that are now in place on Russia are going to impact the the, the ordinary person more than in, in in Iran, for instance? So yes, I think they will, in part, just because the Russian economy was more integrated globally than the Iranian economy was. Um, no, we have blanket sanctions on Iran. We don't quite have that yet. Um, there are still more steps we can take with respect to Russia. So in a way, the sanctions on Russia are a little bit leakier than what we've imposed on Iran. Um, but we do seem to be moving in that direction. We've never weaponized finance the way that we have for Russia on, um, on major economy before. We've done it with Iran, we've done it with Venezuela as well, but these are much smaller economies that are much less integrated into the global economy. I don't wanna overstate how much Russia is integrated into the global economy. Since 2014 in particular, Russia has been try intentionally trying to de-dollarize its economy, has become more insular, um, but even so it's a much bigger economy than Iran or Venezuela's. What are the prospects of China coming to Russia's rescue financially? So I think China coming to Russia's rescue is one of those things that works in theory, but not in practice. Um, Chinese banks are going to be incredibly wary of transacting with Russia or Russian businesses or Russian banks um, for fear of retaliatory sanctions from the U.S. And don't forget, the U.S. dollar is still the global reserve currency. And so... Um, that needs to be a concern for China. Um, China has already signed a few deals with Russia to buy more of its coal, for example. I expect China will be looking to take advantage of um, you know, oil and gas deals from Russia. So China will be transacting with Russia and strategically taking opportunities. We saw that uh, off the back of the 2014 invasion of Crimea by Russia as well. Um, China stepped in and used it to its strategic advantage. 
Um, but I doubt that China will step in and be sort of Russia's savior. We've kicked a bunch of Russian banks out of SWIFT, the communication system for international um, transactions between banks. Uh, many have been concerned that that will just push Russia onto the Chinese system, SIPs, it's called, um, but actually SIPS still uses SWIFT for its communications, so it's not quite ready yet. That doesn't mean it won't get there, and us kicking Russian banks out of SWIFT may accelerate other countries, particularly China and Russia, um, developing their own sort of financial plumbing uh, so that they aren't quite so reliant on the West, um, but it's not there yet. And so I think in the short term, it's very unlikely that China will come to Russia's rescue. I talked at the beginning about the boycott on Russian oil. Uh, the UK and the US have announced that's going to happen. W which other countries are most dependent on Russian oil and what will be the global economic consequences of a ban? Yes, yeah, so the US and the UK announcing an oil embargo for Russia is more symbolic than anything else. The US and the UK actually import relatively little oil. Um, the OECD imports a significant amount of Russian oil, but it's it's manageable to embargo Russian oil. I expect the EU will probably come on board. The EU is more exposed to Russian oil than the US or the UK. I think roughly a third of the EU's oil comes from Russia. Um, but that's a much lower stakes uh, measure than the EU imposing a, a natural gas embargo on Russia. That would have far more severe consequences for Europe. If you look at revenues for, for Russia for oil versus natural gas, Russia gets far more revenues from oil than it does natural gas. And so if the goal of sanctions is to impose maximum pain on Russia and minimum pain on the West, then embargoing oil is a much better call than embargoing natural gas. Um, so I do think that an oil embargo will probably become more widespread than it is right now and that the EU will probably join forces, even though it will hurt the EU more than it does much of the rest of the OECD. But you wouldn't anticipate a ban on gas, at least yet, until things become really desperate. That's right. Um, you know, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has already come out to say that that would be a disaster for Germany and for the EU. Um, you know, the EU gets roughly 40 percent um, of Russian gas exports go to the EU. The EU is highly dependent on Russia. And if, you know, the U.S. has been looking to find alternative sources for the EU um, in, in the case that Russia decides to turn off its taps, proactively to the EU. I don't think that's likely, particularly because Russia is getting all kinds of revenues from those gas sales. Um, but if it were to happen because the EU decides to impose an embargo, uh, it's very difficult to figure out how the EU could make up that gap. So the US, Canada and Qatar have already agreed to export um, LNG to the EU in that case. That can make up a bit of the gap. Um, but it can't make up all of it. Um, what the EU really needs to worry about now that it's getting into spring is refilling its inventories for next winter. That's the real concern. And there's a bit more time to deal with that. Uh, but it's still unclear if, if the EU can't rely on Russian gas for that, where they're going to get gas supplies from. Um, the EU is trying to come up with a way to reduce 80% um, of its demand for gas uh, over the next year. I think that's really ambitious. The IEA came out with a 10-point list of how the EU can reduce 
its gas reliance on Russia, and it could reduce its reliance by 30%, kind of maxing out uh, every measure. And so to make up for what it would lose from Russia, it, it's impossible. We'll have to see something happen on the demand side as well. And it could uh, cause such a growth shock for Europe that the Europe could end up in this horrible stagflationary environment where growth is going sideways or dipping while inflation is soaring. That's every central bank's worst nightmare. There aren't any good policy tools in that environment. Um, and so I think that's what the EU is trying to avoid and will continue to try to push off a gas embargo for that reason. How, how much is Russia earning in revenues from gas from the EU at the moment? It's a good question. I'm not sure exactly how much that is. I know that total it's oil revenues, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot, but I, total lot, yeah. oil revenues are roughly three times total gas revenues for Russia. So if you want to so-called hit them where it hurts, then oil globally is, is the better target than gas in any case. You write in your piece about the the price that the West is going to pay for this, the the, the blowback for the West, particularly for the eurozone. Uh, I mean, how how will people tolerate their own economy slumping, or do you think domestic political concerns will start to influence foreign policy? We're already seeing some of the blowback. You're seeing it in commodity prices. Um, so not just energy costs, which have risen significantly. I'm sitting in California at the moment. We've seen um, you know, gas prices increase by 50 cents uh, per gallon over the past couple of days alone. Um, you know, Gas is over $6 per gallon here, which I've never seen before, actually. But you're also seeing it in other commodity prices. So wheat prices have gone you know, vertical. Nickel prices have gone vertical. You're seeing uh, trading in a lot of these commodities halt. Um, you could end up with a food scarcity problem come spring, which is a real concern for Egypt in particular and other parts of the Middle East. Um, but also Russia and Ukraine export a third of the world's wheat um, and, and fertilizer. Um, on top of that, you know, you've got Russia as a big exporter of things like aluminum, nickel, and palladium. All of these things are inputs into batteries and semiconductor chips. Um, so if you were having trouble buying a car before, good luck to you now. They'll become even more scarce. And the, the global supply problem we had with semiconductors uh, will just be exacerbated. So a lot of economists had hoped that supply chain disruptions would ease in the second half of this year, myself included. I think we're going to have to push that out a bit further off the back of this. Um, there's some really woolly, poorly understood potential implications in financial markets, though. Um, if Russian banks can't receive payments because they've been kicked out of SWIFT, they also can't make them. And there's a ton of counterparty risk out there, particularly for Europe, that could cause a bunch of defaults. Um, that is a dog that hasn't barked yet, but I suspect it will. And then on top of that, if everybody all of a sudden is trying to get dollar funding, which um, we've seen, we've seen some stress in the markets, as the Fed is trying to withdraw liquidity, um, there are big questions about how that's going to work. There's a risk that you end up having the market stop functioning and needing central banks, particularly the Fed, to step in and make markets the way it did in March 2020 when the pandemic first hit. Um, and that causes all kinds of financial dislocations. Um, winners and losers and, and a drag on economic growth. Um, I think for now that, um, you know, support for the West measures is, is very high. 
as energy prices continue to be elevated, as people can't get things because of supply chain issues, food gets more expensive. That really eats into people's standards of living. And I do think there will be questions starting to arise, particularly in the U.S., which is a little bit detached um, from this crisis relative to Europe, for example. There will be questions about exactly why we're doing this. If you looked at polls in the U.S. before Russia invaded Ukraine, support for any kind of U.S. measures in Ukraine were actually already pretty low. So add much more expensive gas. Um, and I think support will drop even further. So I think that the unity that we're seeing between the West has been really high. It will probably wane as time goes on, um, particularly in the U.S. What do you think this means for measures against countering climate change? I mean, the the, op the optimistic version is that uh, as as gas becomes a kind of imp impossible thing to trade in, that it could accelerate the move to uh, natural resources. I suppose the pessimistic version is that the situation you've just described, that, that the sort of backlash against um, uh, the, 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 the use of, um, you know, the, the, the rush to solar or wind energy is going to be decried. I mean, you could see a bit of that happening in Britain already. You know, what, why are we going for net zero when we've got so much uh, reserves of North Sea gas that we could still be mining? There's, there's voices being raised in favor of fracking again. How, how do you think that's going to play out? Yeah, so I think it will play out differently um, in the U.S. and Europe. The number one question I get in the U.S. these days is, is Biden going to reopen the Keystone Pipeline? Um, so that just suggests kind of everybody's impetus here that, well, you know, we're ending up with expensive um, gas at the pump. Why don't we reopen the Keystone Pipeline? Um, that's not going to happen. It was one of Biden's first executive orders was to shut it down. Um, but it just suggests that there's sort of less support for a massive expensive push into renewables uh, and a green transition now in the U.S. I think the debate is further along in Europe, was already further along before this um, conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and what we've seen is that the EU is looking into mutualizing debt in some way to finance not only defense spending, but the green transition. Um, you know, the green transition or funding for it was already baked into the next generation EU funds. So the loans and grants that national capitals were getting from Brussels, uh, you know, a third of it roughly had to be earmarked for the green transition. Um, so it looks like the Europeans are thinking about big spending going forward, and, and rightly so. Um, I think the message has been received that they need to diversify from Russian energy. In the short term, we might see more coal usage, though, in Europe, just as a way to, um, to in the next year, to kind of fill the gap if Europe can't rely on supply from Russia or won't because of, of an embargo. Um, so I think in the short term, you know, we might see a, a small shift back towards fossil fuels a little bit, coal in particular. Um, I think there's a debate about the nuclear reactors that haven't been um, fully mothballed yet. We might do that more slowly in Europe, um, given that uh, nuclear energy could help fill the gap as well. But over the medium to long term, I think there is a real push in Europe towards a green transition. Um, and so I expect that funding will be mobilized, public funding will be mobilized, um, largely through the EU, uh, in order to, to make sure that happens. You said that so far, the, the, the sanctions have gone. Uh, they've been they've been very severe, but the, there's still more that could happen. What, what would you anticipate the next sanctions uh, are going to look like? 
So I think the next one is maybe Europe um, embargoing oil imports uh, from Russia. Uh, beyond that, we could see Russia kicked out of some more indices. So MSCI kicked Russia out of the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, but we could see JP Morgan, the Bank of America kicking Russia out of their indices as well, which could cause a whole bunch of automatic selling. There's a really interesting question about, you know, how do you sell Russian assets as a foreigner um, and who's going to be on the other side of that trade? Um, and so there are sort of two markets that are emerging between uh, sort of insiders uh, in Russian assets in Russia and outsiders, they can't really talk to each other, which will recreate all kinds of dislocations. Um, you know, Russia has a significant coupon payment. The, the sovereign has a coupon payment coming up. We'll see whether it's a, a euro dollar bond. So whether they go ahead and service that, um, if they service it, can the creditor actually access it? That's also unclear, so would it count as a default? We just don't know. There are a whole bunch of questions like that in financial markets um, that could emerge from the, the other measures that could be imposed. I think those are the main ones, though, kicking Russia out of indices and also imposing an oil embargo. We could get to a gas embargo eventually as well, but I think that uh, the EU will try to resist that for a while. I'd love to know what it's like being an economist at the moment. I mean, we've just come out of two years of COVID where it felt as though all the rules uh, around finance were ripped up and, and people were making it up as they went along. And this was supposed to be the period of uh, recovery. Um, are you having to rethink everything that you've ever learned about economics? Yeah, I think economists have been in a... In a process of soul searching since the global financial crisis, to be honest, because most of us missed that and missed the long, slow recovery. And then the pandemic hit. Um, so there is a lot of uncertainty, I think, with our traditional models and frameworks in economics. Uh, generally, um, I think there's a lot we just don't know about the economy right now, in particular, because we've never put our economy on a deep freeze and then thought it before. Um, so fundamental questions like what happened to the American worker? Why is the labor force participation rate so much lower now than it was before the pandemic? That has huge policy implications. Um, and then you add in a, a war in continental Europe on top of that. Um, the, the idea that Europe and the U.S. were already in an energy crisis before that happened. There's just a ton of uncertainty um, as an economist, I spend a lot of time talking to non-economists, um, particularly hard scientists, so epidemiologists, physicists, um, and also some anthropologists and sociologists, um, trying to figure out lessons that we can learn from a lot of these other sciences to improve our models and frameworks. And it does turn out economics is sort of the last holdout on a bunch of ideas. Everyone else has kind of moved on. And so I do think that there's room for improvement in terms of our models and frameworks to try to understand what's going on around us in economics. I mean, in, in the UK, we lived through a period of quite significant austerity uh, post-2010, and we were told that uh, that was the only way to keep the, comedy, the, the economy afloat. And then when COVID struck, suddenly the, the money tree, the magic money tree, which we were told wasn't there, was there, and um, the, the money appeared, and then we were preparing ourselves for, for uh, paying it back. I mean, is the truth, is the blunt truth that we're going to have to, we're still going to have to pay for COVID and we're still going to have to pay for the war? And 
uh, are economists revising the way they think about the, the ideas of Keynes versus the ideas of monetarism? I mean, is this a period that will be studied in universities for years to come? I think it will be. Um, and the jury's really still out. So a lot of, co of economists and central bankers, I think, were hoping that central banks have been stepping in to do so much with some fiscal help over the course of the pandemic. But before that, it was really just central banks who were the only game in town. And they certainly stepped in in a big way during the pandemic as well to keep borrowing costs low so that the fiscal authorities could do what they might. The idea now is supposed to be that central banks are going to normalize policy and start withdrawing accommodation, particularly as we've seen inflation soar across the developed world. Um, now there's a big question about whether that can happen because, of course, as everybody's facing higher energy costs, that's a huge hit for the consumer. Um, and so that's a drag on growth at the same time that it's driving inflation even higher. That's a dangerous scenario for a central bank. And it will be interesting to see how different central banks address it. Um, hiking rates into higher energy costs has been a mistake before. The ECB has done it twice. And the past two rate hiking cycles were hiking into higher energy costs um, with disastrous effects for the economy. Both times it turned out in 2008, 2011, it turned out to be a huge mistake. Is the ECB going to do that again? We're just not sure, but it seems like the moment for central banks just handing the baton back to fiscal authorities, withdrawing accommodation and going back um, to just normal monetary policy, hiking and cutting rates, no longer engaging in asset purchases. Um, I, I think that opportunity has passed and that central banks are going to have to stick in there. They might be able to get rates up off of zero or negative, um, depending on the central bank. But I think they're going to have to continue to support growth uh, in the face of, of this energy crisis that we're all facing. Final question. You, you mentioned the S word, stagflation. Um, should we be bracing ourselves for the R word, recession? It's possible. I think that's more of a concern for Europe than it is for the U.S. Um, just because the U.S. recovery, um, the U.S. has recovered to pre-pandemic trends, whereas Europe really hasn't quite yet. Um, so I think that risk is higher in Europe. Um, it can be avoided uh, with the right fiscal and monetary um, accommodation. There's just a question about whether policymakers can pivot. Um, so, for example, at its last press conference, the ECB came out with a very hawkish bent, suggesting they would wind down asset purchases faster so they could start getting rates up faster. That was before Russia invaded Ukraine. So can they pivot and actually figure, you know what, we better continue to support the economy and continue to keep borrowing costs low so that governments can borrow to fund the green transition and also increase defense spending? Uh, we'll find out on March 10th, that one. Um, but, you know, it's one example of policymakers needing to be really nimble um, and also humble, as, as Fed Chair Jay Powell highlighted recently, um, in order to respond to the events that we're seeing. Megan, thanks so much for giving up time and for um, such clear thinking at a time when it's so much needed. And, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you to all of you for tuning in to hear this discussion. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, why not escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of our latest Prospect magazine, which is available on newsstands now. 
or even better go to the subscription uh, page it's a script subscription dot prospect magazine all one word dot co uk uh, and at the moment you can get three issues for the amazing bargain of five pounds which um uh, no no inflation there uh, our latest feature our latest issue features writing from emily maitlis alex von tunzelman and david hare amongst many more goodbye stay safe and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.